Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. My guest today is Professor George Fisher, Distinguished Professor of Law at Stanford University. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, George. Well, thank you, Richard. It's an honor to be with you. I'm tr- uh, we're having a little technical difficulty to start this right out. Can you hear the, the uh, music in the background? I can. David, could you cut the music, please? That's much better. I mean, we do want a revolution of some sort, and it's wonderful to hear the Beatles, but I don't think we need to hear them in the background while we're doing the interview. So what we're going to be talking about uh, with you today, George, uh, is your upcoming book, uh, Euphoria Taboo. Is that the full title? Uh, there's a subtitle that, that reads The Moral Roots and Racial Myths of America's War on Drugs. So give us a little background. Why did you take on this topic? Well, I've been teaching in the realm of criminal law for a long time. I was a prosecutor before I started teaching. And the drug war is the centerpiece of our criminal justice system or to put it a little bit differently. The drug war is the the core trouble with our criminal justice system as it exists today. It's the the source of um, arguable over-criminalization in the system. It's the source of many police tactics that people have begun to mistrust and dislike. And it's the source, to some degree, of the uh, over-incarceration that is... um, notoriously a part of our criminal justice system today. And so learning where the drug work came from struck me as an important investigation. Um, the driving question really is, is evil begotten by evil? Did we get here because we, we aim to do something that would turn out badly? Or, or did, did the drug war begin in more innocuous ways and, and take a bad turn along the way? And Start out by telling us, what did your initial investigation, starting as a prosecutor, moving to becoming a professor of law, a distinguished professor of law, if I might add, at at Stanford University, certainly one of the finest, if not the finest law schools in the country, if not the world. What did you what did you start to find out when you did began your investigation? Well, what I discovered was that a a theory that is often repeated about the start of the drug war, which is that it began with racial roots. That that is the the theory that has been so prominent over the last many years, perhaps a quarter century, uh, is that uh, laws against opium, which were the earliest American anti-drug laws, took rise in hatred of the Chinese immigrants who brought smoking opium to the country, Um, that laws against cocaine took rise in hatred of African-Americans who were thought to be prominent users of cocaine, and that laws against cannabis uh, took rise in hatred against the Mexican immigrants who brought at least one form of cannabis, marijuana, to this country. And... these theories never, as a as a prosecutor and as a observer of American culture, never seem to me to be entirely right because they would presume that if 
if this were a country that existed um, with only one racial group, that we would not ban drugs because we would not have that racial animus feeding into the dislike and mistrust of these substances. And there was no picture of, the, of American society that struck me as an accurate one in which um, drug laws never took shape, never took rise. Uh, so when I started looking deeper, I, I found that the roots of the drug war went far earlier and had their... Their, their initial core was more of a moral, a moral dislike of a certain sort of pleasure. Um, the title of the book being Euphoria Taboo, the sort of pleasure that seems to be at the root of the of drug bans and before them of, of alcohol regulation and in some ways alcohol bans, is um, a, a, an aversion to a mind-numbing euphoria, the kind of euphoria that disables reason. And the, the roots of this notion go back very early, at least to early Christian times, and early suspicions about recreational non-procreative sex. Yeah, yeah, thank you for allowing me to interrupt. I mean, in that brief period, you almost totally outlined your book, which is, because I've read the book, I, you know, I'm I'm familiar, but I want to fill in the dots for our listeners and for our readers. When you first began investigating, you did come across the same kind of information that I came across, of course, which is that Harry Anslinger, the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, I think appointed by his uh, his his uncle uh, Andrew, was it Andrew Lemon uh, Mellon? I think it was, uh, who was Secretary of the Treasury, right? And so uh, I think Anslinger was married to Mellon's niece, as I recall, and so he got this job. And you, you found what I found, which was that Anslinger was a, was a rabid racist, and so we got all this information, and, and that many of us were led to believe that because of his racism, uh, he went on a campaign, and so you discovered that when you, when you were doing your research as well. And you, but you, you also, as you pointed out, found that certain drugs, marijuana, co uh, cocaine particularly, and heroin, were associated with certain ethnic groups, correct? With Mexicans, with black people, and with opium with, uh, with Chinese people. But you also found... I'm sure that these three groups were the most likely to be incarcerated, correct? Well, you know, in early years, one of the most surprising things I discovered is at least um, in the West Coast and in the Western states, where Chinese immigration first took place beginning in the 1850s and 60s, uh, and brought with them opium smoking and, and therefore opium dens, the first laws against this this particular form of drug use, and the very first one being the, the San Francisco Opium Dens Ordinance of 1875, they had a, the laws themselves took a race-neutral form. Um, they had to, because this is after the, the 14th Amendment and after the Equal Protection Clause. So laws were written in a race-neutral way, but they were enforced, um, very surprisingly, not targeting the Chinese users of opium, 
but targeting white users and those who sold to whites so that Chinese opium dens in San Francisco and throughout the Western states um, that served only Chinese patrons were typically allowed to exist and the police left them undisturbed. But the police took a particular care to root out white users of, of smoking opium, um, white opium smokers, and those who sold to whites. And this was, this was notoriously known to the point where when newspapers wrote about these laws, even though the laws themselves were written in a race-neutral way, newspaper editors would refer to them as, for example, San Francisco's law against white persons in opium dens. The word white did not appear in the law, but, uh, but even the San Francisco police chief of the day uh, said for, for, for publications, was quoted in the press as saying that he understood the role of the police here to be keeping white persons out of opium dens. It's, it's, it's not that the laws weren't enforced in a racist way, but the racism was a very different sort of racism from the sort long suspected to lie behind American drug laws. It was a racism rooted in the concern lawmakers had with the moral purity of their own kin and their own youth in particular and the, 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 the women of the white community. Uh, it's, it's especially when young persons, when respectable young persons and when respectable young white women went to opium dens, that lawmakers took the greatest concern and acted the most quickly to ban the dens. I understand that. At the same time, in terms of prosecution, weren't the Chinese prosecuted more heavily than the whites who they were trying to protect? Or by the same token, Weren't the Mexicans prosecuted more heavily? Weren't the blacks? I mean, we had the same um, um, issue regarding these drugs being used by these groups to seduce white women, right? The, the sexual uh, aspect of it, right? Black men giving white women cocaine in order to seduce them. But what wasn't it the black men and the Hispanic men and the and the Chinese men who were mostly prosecuted, even though, as you say, they may have been prosecuted for the purpose of protecting white women or white young boys? Weren't they the ones who were the object of prosecution and incarceration? In time, uh, the drug laws became... Uh, co-opted by racial motives and by racist actors who wanted to subjugate Mexicans and Chinese persons and uh, African Americans. But that was a later development. It came, it came within the first several decades, but it was not the initial impulse and it was not the initial way in which these laws seemed to have been enforced. So that the earliest laws against uh, both cocaine and cannabis were not in states that were, um, in the case of cocaine, heavily populated by African Americans, or in the case of cannabis, in states heavily populated by Mexicans. The first, the first couple of states to ban uh, cocaine were Oregon and Montana, where 
the African-American population was very small. And the first um, several states to ban cannabis were Massachusetts and Maine and Indiana and Wyoming, and also California, which did indeed have a fairly heavy Mexican population, immigrant Mexican population. But the the very first anti-cannabis law was in Massachusetts, which had virtually no Mexican persons present. Uh, the law was much more, really, was entirely about protecting white people from these substances. And eventually, the trend in lawmaking moved to states that were more heavily populated by the groups with which the drugs, at the time, were most commonly associated. Um, marijuana with Mexican immigrants and cocaine with, uh, at least allegedly, with African American users in the South. But that took time. And those prosecuted, for example, um, those first prosecuted for cocaine sales were heavily, and I won't say entirely, but were heavily pharmacists who were prominently white persons and who were the source of cocaine in the early days of cocaine illegalization. Um, Cocaine having been um, a a medical drug before it became a recreational drug. It's it's not that racism wasn't always coursing through our culture, and it's not that racism didn't eventually take over the realm of drug law prosecution, as I think we know today it quite clearly has done, at least in many quarters. But, uh, but that's, not the, that, that's not where these laws took rise. And in the in- initial years of these uh, drugs, and their illegalization in this country, it's not where the police were, were focusing their energies. So that, just to give one more example, um, one of the more notorious opium den keepers in San Francisco who was prosecuted several times was a woman named Jenny Perkins, who was not Chinese at all, but was not exempt because she happened to be a white woman. Uh, to some degree, uh, the, the law thought of her as even a more curious and unwelcome character because uh, she was taking it on herself to import into the white community what had been then um, a vice that was largely limited, not by any means entirely limited, to the Chinese. Well, I was discussing uh, your book and your theory with a with a colleague, and uh, a question he raised was, well, then how does Professor Fisher account for the fact that we've got over a million black people in jail in this country for uh, marijuana? And, 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 and it's thought that of that million plus, I mean, some people quote it as a million six. I'm not sure of the number. You may, may know more than I, but it's a, it's a huge number. And, and the number of blacks who, who are in, incarcerated for marijuana is multiples of the number of whites incarcerated for marijuana. And he's wondering, how do do you account for that if it's not racist in origin? So um, I I would, by the way, question those figures, which strike me as as pretty exaggerated. But but Uh let me set that aside. I think that the general point that uh, African-Americans and Latinos are most heavily targeted, uh, disproportionately targeted by police enforcement today. Uh, That is surely true, that the the rate of arrests 
uh, for drug distribution in non-white communities is certainly higher than among whites. Um, there are a couple of things that could be driving that. One, of course, is simply, the, the, as, as I, I think we all have to admit, the racism that does pulse through our culture um, does not leave the police untouched, does not leave prosecutors or judges or juries untouched. So to some degree, a disproportionate incarceration and disproportionate prosecution and arrests, it, it will trace to racism. To some degree, it, it traces to economic opportunities, that those who are serving time in prison um, today for, um, for drug prosec- because of drug prosecutions largely aren't simple users, um, and certainly in the case of marijuana, uh, the, the the proportion of American prisoners serving time for marijuana use alone is well less than 1% of the entire prison population. Uh, sales are a different story, of course, and sales are more prominently prosecuted, and when prosecuted and uh, resulting in convictions are more likely to draw heavy prison sentences than simple use, which... Um, you know, in many jurisdictions today, including my own California, simple use is very unlikely to draw a, a criminal prosecution at all. And if it does, it's, it's extremely unlikely to result in imprisonment. Now, a drug use that triggers other crimes, uh, for example, theft to feed addiction, that may result in, in imprisonment. That's a, that is true. Uh, but when we look at where economic um, economic opportunities lie in this country, it's not, it would not be surprising if um, in, in economically depressed communities, drug sales were more heavily concentrated than in communities where there were other, better, lawful ways to make um, a decent living. So in a way, is what you're saying, it's not simply because people are black that they're getting arrested more it's that blacks are more impoverished and they're more likely to be in the drug trade as a way of making a living, and that's why they're prosecuted more. Is that correct? Well, I'm suggesting that that's at least a possibility. That It's very hard to disentangle, of course, because once you recognize that police uh, patrol certain neighborhoods uh, more diligently than they patrol others, for better and for worse, uh, and that police um, may expect and suspect criminality among non-white populations before they will expect and suspect that criminality among whites. And once we know that juries may think in, the, in similar ways, et cetera, it's very hard to disentangle where, um, where crime is, is most prominently committed and where crime is simply most prominently prosecuted without regard to where it's most prominently committed. So I'm recognizing the possibility that it's just hard to disentangle um, these things because you can't do, of course, a, a poll to discover who, who's who's selling drugs and who's not. It's it's not an easy thing to um, discern in empirical ways. I just found it hard to argue with my colleague when he points out, even if his numbers were exaggerated, as you say, and they might be, uh, hard to argue because even if the numbers are exaggerated, there are more blacks incarcerated for drug offenses in this country than whites, and there are fewer blacks in this country than whites. 
So that makes the disproportion even greater, and that makes it very easy to make the jump from those numbers to must be racism behind it. Otherwise, why would we have so many more blacks in jail? I found it hard to argue with him about that. And and there's no question that that um, that there is a lot of racism driving those numbers. And one notorious spot where we see the racism written into law um, is the is the the disproportion in punishment between those who traffic in powder cocaine, a crime uh, more likely to be committed by white persons, and those who traffic in crack cocaine, a crime that's more likely to be committed by African-American persons. And Congress, back in the 1980s, um, erected a very disproportionate sentencing scheme So, where, in which a person who is um, found in possession of, say, five grams of crack cocaine um, would draw the same punishment as a person who is found in possession of 500 grams of, of powder cocaine. Wow. Oh. And this lasted um, for many years, despite a, a widespread recognition of the disproportionate racial impact of this law falling more heavily on the African-American population. And it took, it took many years. It took until 2010, uh, after uh, 25 years in the operation of these laws, before, under the Obama administration, that disproportion was reduced. It was not eliminated. It's not as though there's complete parity today. But today, the, the, the 100 to 1 ratio in powder versus in crack versus powder cocaine sentencing has been reduced to 18 to 1. The ratio is reduced, but it still exists. And it's, it's, it's hard to argue that the long persistence of that disproportion in our drug laws did not trace to some degree of racism in the lawmaking scheme and in the, the law enforcing culture of the country. Yes, I found it hard to argue uh, that as well. I, I understand that. Uh, are you familiar with these reports that are on the internet uh, that say that the FBI uh, started reporting 20 years ago that white supremacist group in an in, in organized fashion had decided to start infiltrating uh, police departments around the country. Have you, have you seen that? I confess I have not. I, I, I would sure like your opinion on that sometime because I have seen that, but I don't know whether to believe it or not just because I see it you know, on Google on the internet. Uh, but I've seen it and, and I've seen it over and over again in various ways. And uh, if you might, I'd appreciate it. You might make note, because if that is true, that that it wasn't simply a matter of infiltrating some police departments, but there was an organized movement from whatever central headquarters of white supremacy is, you know, if there is such a thing, you know, that, that it was an organized movement, such as we know that political groups do make organized, you know, uh, moves that, that, that are going to take 10, 20, and 30 years. Uh, so I, I'd be real interested in that, because if that is the case, then it adds a lot of fuel to the racist uh, argument with regard to, uh, you know, disproportionate policing 
of people of color, and it's a very serious one. Well, that would be a very serious allegation, but I would say um, that it need not have been an organized effort, that um, that one can imagine that at least in certain communities, and I certainly don't mean to suggest this is universal across the country, that those drawn to police work might be persons who, who have a, a particular racial bent and a particular political and ideological bent, that police work in some communities might draw from certain populations, so that there need not have been a concerted effort to um, end up with a certain disproportion within some police populations of people with of certain racial attitudes. And you know, let me emphasize, I certainly don't mean to suggest that's, that's uniformly true, and I know many, many counterexamples of people with whom I've worked in the course of my career. But you're saying that there's something about police work in and of itself that inherently might attract such people. I think the power of the badge, the power of the gun, um, and, a, and a culture that might be perceived from the outside to be friendly to certain ideological strains might draw certain people to the police and to okay. police work. So you did this research, just as I have done, and you saw the racism involved in the drug wars, and something drove you to look deeper, that perhaps there's something even further behind these, what some of us consider to be draconian, if not downright misguided, drug laws, and you decided to go deeper. Now, take us down that path. Now we're filling in the dots of how you laid it out for us at the beginning of the interview. Well, Tell us. For, thank you for inviting me down that path. Yes, um, you're welcome. And so please take us now to your deeper work. You went further back. So I, I did. And uh, I, be, I began by, by thinking that we can't disentangle the drug war from alcohol regulation. The, the, the parallels between these things are very clear. We have various recreational drugs, um, various drugs that can be very harmful if overused, um, but they're treated um, both culturally and especially legally, my particular concern, in very different ways. Uh, so that despite um, a notorious episode in this country in the 1920s when there was national prohibition of alcohol and various state prohibitions that were um, lasted a greater or lesser time in the, in the 19th century, we have a culture that for millennia has been generally open to moderate alcohol use, uh, even alcohol use that takes a recreational form so long as it doesn't go over a line into drunkenness. And when it does go over a line into drunkenness, there's a long history in our culture of banning and even criminalizing alcohol use. So... The first question, therefore, is, is why do we treat alcohol differently, or why have we, over time, treated alcohol differently than the way we have regarded other recreational drugs? And, and that investigation took me back far farther, because alcohol regulation seemed to have a lot of parallels, both in the, in the rhetoric of alcohol regulation um, and in the form it took with um, early notions towards sex. And, and so the, the study really begins back in early Christian days 
um, with attitudes toward non-procreational sex, which was regarded by the church and Western culture, um, the, the, the Christian church, as being generally sinful. Um, but there were, but but it was it was not, it was not the the the, the, the stereotypically Puritan notion of all pleasure is bad. Uh, there was never anything quite that simplistic. It was more that certain forms of pleasure are bad because they deprive of us deprive us of what is most essentially human, which is our reason, and that's the part of humanity that brings us closest to God. And this moral notion. Um, let, let, let me allow me to interrupt you, George. We make that statement again about something most essential to humanity. You, you, you connected reason as being correct. That's correct. And I, I imagine uh, as the the first word, the first name of your title being mind. That that must be an appealing notion to you. It's it's very appealing, but I'm wondering how you get there to make the statement that reason is the most, how did you put it, essential aspect of... This, this notion lies deep in, in Western culture, going back to Greek philosophers, to, uh, to Socrates and, um, and, and later Aristotle, or Plato, and especially in Aristotle, and going uh, into Christian times, we can see it in the works of, of Saint Augustine. Uh, and Augustine is is forms a central part of the early study I make because he um, articulated in a way that that pervaded for centuries this idea that that sexual pleasure deprives uh, humans of that connection with our reason. If only momentarily, it puts humans out of their minds in a way that that um, makes them more like animals, more like barnyard animals, appetitive animals. That is to say, the 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 animals that live to to eat and to have sex and uh, to pleasure themselves. It's that image of, of something subhuman that Augustine and before him these Greek philosophers attached to non-procreative recreational sex. Um, and that image lasted through the centuries and it was really embraced by later Puritan uh, anti-drunkenness advocates of um, Puritan times in England. There was a, a real straight linear evolutionary thread between these two different, very different eras and very different um, phenomena, sex and, and alcohol. I, I would question the notion though that the essential core of being human is reason. Uh, the fact that the philosophers put that forth could be the fact that philosophers by their very nature are reasonable. <laughs> yes, they true. live in their minds. Well, that's, that's had, the, had the hedonists been of the type that they would write books and write philosophy, we might be saying that the essential nature of humanity is the senses, <laughs> yeah. and that reason is just another one of the tools that we have while we are pleasuring ourselves in this world, in this paradise <laughs> that we get born into. Well, you put that very well. Let me make this clear. Uh, I, I am not arguing that any of this is, is, is right. 
that any of this uh, really is the way we should look at uh, humans and what is actually most fundamentally good about humans. I'm tracing a thread that gave rise to a legal notion in later times about um, how we should actually regulate certain pleasurable activities and substances. And, and this thread um, may not be the source of your or my moral instincts, but I, I do believe it's, it is the source of mainstream Western moral morality. And it's the mainstream that gives rise to lawmaking. Um, it's not the fringes. And so... Uh, it, it, I understand it, what you're saying. And please know that I'm not stating that I think you're taking the position that you necessarily agree or disagree with the philosophers. I'm attempting to examine them together with you and what they are saying. And, and I'm quite aware that, that um, they have taken this position uh, of reason, you know, cogito ergo sum, but uh, nobody is saying I pleasure, therefore I am, <laughs> right. by by any means, and, and perhaps no one would dare. But because of these antecedents that you are pointing out for our education, that they are there, and because they are mainstream, does not necessarily mean to me that we're on the correct path. Or, that's, or that is the best way for humanity to be. It just may be the way that, you know, that, that we have developed. Because by the same token, an argument can be made that our present worldwide political structure is nothing more or less than a descendant of how we were in the caves, namely the toughest guy in the cave was the guy that ruled the neighborhood of caves. And so eventually that toughest guy in the cave became the head of the local cave, the head of the local town, the head of the local city. Eventually that toughest guy became the head of that country. And then we have what we call tyrants, autocrats, you know, and, the, and those kind of, of strong men leading countries, which they are around the world. And, and, and to a certain one could take the view, and I do at times, that those local strongmen nowadays are nothing more or less than that same guy in the cave. <laughs> well, I, I'm no political theorist, but I, I, I won't, <laughs> I won't uh, argue against you. I, um, I, I, well, very fair point. Uh, they, they, they may have um, been peculiar unto themselves, these philosophers, uh, both Christian and early Greek and later Puritans who, who followed in their trail. Um, and they may have exalt, exalted those things that they thought right. I, I do think it's, uh, we can look at American culture today and see that, that mainstream morality, we can still kind of put a finger on what mainstream American morality might be. Yes. It's, it's, it's harder and harder. But there's no doubt that you know, where I live in, in a liberal neighborhood in San Francisco is um, very different. In, in its general moral themes from mainstream American morality. And, and, and therefore, lawmaking out here in uh, San Francisco also takes a different form uh, than lawmaking in middle America to the degree we can picture what middle, middle America is. Uh, but, of course, it's the drug laws and before them alcohol regulation and before them sexual regulation all took rise from the, the broad middle 
of the culture that gave rise to them. It's the middle that makes the, that make, that makes the laws. Uh, just by sheer numbers, it will be that way. And that was my aim with this study, was to trace the origins of the impulse to regulate and ban drugs. Uh, certainly not to prove it's right. In fact, um, I, I, I put out, I, I lay my cards on the table very early in writing this project that if it were up to me, there would not be a war against drugs. And this is not, therefore, a, a study in the origins of my own opinions, but in the origins of a broad social phenomenon which is by no means peculiarly American. So it's just important to note that we can look around the world and there is no culture that is open-armed toward drugs. Uh, there are some cultures that um, are experimenting in different ways of regulating drugs. For example, Portugal being a prominent one, which has decriminalized drug use, but continues to criminalize drug sale. And I don't know of um, a culture on earth that has uh, decriminalized drug sales. And I think um, the universality of attitudes toward drugs uh, varying in, in their intensity, no doubt, from place to place, but not taking entirely different forms is some evidence that, that there's, um, there's a, a, an impulse that is kind of broadly human that is driving some of this lawmaking. Let me question that impulse let, let me take the position that if the countries of the world were allowed to make their own decisions about their drug laws, they might not be doing what it is that you're pointing out they're doing, which is almost universally agreeing that certain activities are illegal. And, and here's my a bit of evidence in, in that regard. You know that Anslinger went before the United Nations. And we do know that he traveled around the world attempting to influence countries to make draconian laws against drugs. And it was about 14 or 15 years ago that I went with a group of scientists to Israel to discuss with them the use of the drug MDMA for the purpose of dealing with their PTSD that came from people in Israel seeing horrific things uh, during the Intifada. You know, sitting in a restaurant and watching, all of a sudden there's a piece of a body, you know, on your table and things like that. It was horrific, they had a massive PTSD. So we went with a group of scientists to offer MDMA. And the head of the Israeli Supreme Court took me aside and she said, Richard, we would love to use MDMA for our PTSD patients. We know all about it. But if we were to do so, the sanctions by your government against us would decimate us. We cannot go against the United States government. And when I heard that, I mean, not only did my heart sink, of course, but it made me think, this is the descendant of Anslinger's work. And if we're doing this against Israel, we could very well be sanctioning countries around the world or threatening them with sanctions if they didn't follow our policy. And the United States has now had 
85 years since Anslinger took over in 1935 to enforce this around the world. So how can we know for sure that the countries are making their own decisions or whether being strong-armed by the biggest bully on the planet, namely the United States government? A very good question. And and let me say a couple of things about that. Um, Anslinger actually has uh, antecedents in that role that in the early part of the 20th century, even earlier than Anslinger, um, there were there were several international opium conferences. And one of the um, American errands at these opium conferences was to encourage the nations of the earth to ban the opium trade, the recreational opium trade, uh, in part because, of course, Americans um, were concerned about the illegal flow of, of opium and various derivatives into this country. And, 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 and that tradition, as you say, continued later uh, through Harry Anslinger and, um, and in the realm of cannabis especially, and other drugs that had up till then not been as heavily regulated in a worldwide way. So I don't doubt that the nations of the earth would vary perhaps much more than they do now if it weren't that uh, some of the more powerful countries of the earth and uh, the U.S. most prominently regarded international cooperation to be important to the enforcement within our boundaries of these laws. I, I grant you that point in a general way. But let me disentangle at least that general, the, 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 that general matter of um, drug illegalization, which I, I do think has its impulse in more broadly human instincts, from the specific issue that you raised a moment ago, using a drug, say MDMA, to treat um, a condition, PTSD. That is, medical treatment um, always, except in recent American times, has been considered to be something very different. And that goes back, that impulse goes very far back as well, right to the time when we could say sex is bad except when used procreationally, or sex incest was bad except in Eden when the, the, the inhabitants of Eden had no choice but to commit incest if the human race was to propagate. And, and therefore there was always this notion within this uh, moral realm within this particular moral schema, that necessity granted an excuse, a limited excuse. So alcohol was used medicinally. It was used as a dietary supplement. Um, it was, of course, used sacramentally. It had many uses that were considered to be necessary that were always exempt, even from the strictest bans in those times when alcohol was banned, which, which were rare. But... Um, but was, were always thought to be separate. And in and, and, and every alcohol ban that any American state or our federal government ever wrote had exemptions for medical use. And every drug law that any American state um, or the federal government ever wrote, with very few exceptions, had exemptions for medical use. And the most prominent exception was um, in the 1970 Controlled Substances Act when cannabis was made a Schedule I drug with no recognized medical purpose. But that was an anomaly in this long history. Um, and so to the degree today in which we see medical cannabis use 
sweeping the country, now legal in some 34 or 5 states, that's simply a return to the status quo in which medical use is always seen as other than simple recreational, purely pleasurable use. Um, so I grant you that I think the nations of the earth generally would exempt medical use, any well-documented, well-proved, efficacious use of any of these substances uh, would be likely recognized um, within the control of the medical establishment. And that has always been the way um, drug illegalization has been done in this country. Morphine is illegal except when used by doctors in, in treating end-of-life uh, pain and other chronic unbearable pain. And we can find exceptions in almost every drug law except the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, which was the, the grand anomaly of um, drug regulation in that respect. So take us back to the antecedents of the dr drug laws, to your research on the connection to the alcohol uh, attitudes, and then deeper, we're going to go further, behind alcohol to the attitudes towards sexuality and morality, which may be the underlying basis of it all. And so that takes us back to the notion that you questioned, and I think uh, very intelligently questioned not long ago, which was the, the, the fundamental moral belief among those who claimed at least to set the moral tone of our culture hundreds and thousands of years ago, that um, reason is the part of the human creature that is closest to God. And to be exalted and not to be, uh, not to be disabled for purely pleasurable purposes. And it's that animalistic notion, that appetitive behavior, that, that simply sinking to the level of barnyard beasts is bad, that helped drive early regulations against non-procreative sex, and then help drive later regulations against uh, alcohol use when it went to the point of drunkenness. So that Puritan notions toward alcohol use were not categorical in the sense that all alcohol was banned. That was never thought of. It would have been unthinkable in a day in which clean water was hard to be gotten and alcohol was simply a safer thing to drink. And non-spoilable food was hard because of the absence of canning and refrigeration. But alcohol could keep better over time. So beer was a, a dietary substance of essential use, in, 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 in especially in, in, in Europe at the time of the lawmaking that concerns me here. I'm laughing because Ben Franklin talks about when he was in his early 20s and he went back over to England to buy some printing press material and he found out that people were drinking beer for breakfast yes, uh, because right. the, the water was bad. He was used to drinking good water in Philadelphia and they're drinking beer for breakfast. And he said the people are besotted all the time. They, well, they wake up, they get drunk in the, for breakfast, then they have beer for lunch. And in fact, they actually, for breakfast, they ate the mash from the beer as, as sort of a porridge, but it had alcohol in it. Yes, it did. And I, I, I mean, 
I question, though, whether people were besotted all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, this wasn't particularly strong beer in Old England. And, uh, and of course, when people, beginning in their youth, do drink uh, a quantity of, of beer every day, it does, not, um, it does not wipe out the mind in the same way that it would if um, a non-drinker or somebody who drank less regularly were to drink that same quantity. Um, I think the image that is sometimes projected of both um, early America and early uh, medieval and, and, uh, and early modern England of being um, drunk all the time is somewhat <laughs> exaggerated. Well, this guy, Ian Gatley, wrote a book called Drink. I don't know if you've seen that. You've seen Gatley's book? He, he claims everybody in England was drunk for 100 years, from the poorest guy to the king. They thought it was the greatest thing they ever found, walking around silly all the time. Yeah, and I do question that notion. <laughs> uh, it's certainly not what my own research tended to suggest. Uh, it, it tended to suggest, you know, certainly there's always been a certain amount of winking at drunkenness. But uh, but not to that degree. I mean that that um, that it was it was winked at and yet punished and yet regulated. Um, and it may be that the punishment fell more heavily on certain on, on especially economically disadvantaged classes in Old England. Um, but but it's not that I think even in the upper classes there was a recognition that being drunk was a good thing. The connection between pleasure again, because the, the, your book is the euphoria taboo, and I want to focus, keep focusing on that, on this taboo that we have about euphoria. And you're making the connection for us that it's not euphoria per se that is prohibited, but it's that euphoria takes away our reason and our reason is what cl most closely connects us, allegedly, to God. Yes, and so there we can distinguish different kinds of pleasures. Um, for example, dietary pleasures. Uh, these are generally, in our culture, widely esteemed. Um, have being, uh, eating is not something we mm -hmm. despise. It may be the doctors encourage us not to overeat. And it may be that certain people regard people who overeat as kind of being less disciplined and self-controlled than others. That's a notion that runs through some quarters. But we don't punish overeating in our culture. Um, we don't punish cigarette use in our culture. And yet both of them are considered to be very unhealthy. But there's a real distinction between them in that neither of them inhibits our reason. Neither of them makes it hard for us to be our best selves. Neither of it makes it hard for us to do our best thinking. Um, we might not want to be in the presence of a smoker because we worry for our own health, but we don't have that same dislike of being in the presence of a smoker that we might have with being in the presence of a single drunk person at a dinner party who um, is not engaged at the same intellectual level as everybody else, is not engaging in the same pleasurable interchange of ideas as everybody else, because this person's in at that moment just a plain, a different psychic place and is not living uh, reasonably at that moment. And that particular 
aversion that we might feel toward the out-of-place drunk person at a dinner party in, in a much bigger way gives rise to, to lawmaking, which is very morally driven and perhaps not at all rooted in, 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 in itself in good reason. But it gives rise to a certain form of, of lawmaking which bans the purely recreational use of certain substances. And the reason that alcohol is, is treated differently in law is, is I, I believe, most prominently because in the mainstream vision of alcohol use, what is being allowed typically is sub-intoxicating use of alcohol. And that the intoxicating, drunk-making use of alcohol is still considered to be outside the, the social, moral norms. And indeed, we still have in this country pretty um, uniformly laws against public drunkenness. Uh, a lot of the laws against drunkenness in this country that still exist are, are subsumed in drunk driving laws, which in a way punish drunkenness, but, um, but only when it becomes actually dangerous to others, but act as a form of social control um, limiting how intoxicating how intoxicated people get in many in many circumstances. One second, I have to do something technical here. For some reason, this uh, hmm. let's see if this is connecting. Bear with me for a second, George. Absolutely. Can you hear me over here? Can you hear me now? I can. We're okay? One second. Okay, we're good? I can hear you. Okay, I had to switch computers, and I don't need to tell you all the problems I had, but fortunately <laughs> I had a backup computer. Okay, good. All right. Uh, where were we? 
Oh, we were talking about uh, the source of um, the euphoria taboo was your question, which gave rise to. Uh, That's uh, right. Yeah, I was talking about alcohol and alcohol laws and uh, and why we treat alcohol differently than we treat other recreational drugs. So, in effect, what we're what we're saying or you, what you're saying is that. Eating out of control, even to the point of obesity, gambling out of control, even to the point of losing money, doesn't lead to loss of reason. Smoking cigarettes out of control may eventually kill us, but it doesn't lead to the loss of reason. Whereas the morality of the of the, of the great middle sees cocaine or heroin or opium or LSD or various other mind-altering substances as taking away our reason. And when we lose our reason, according to this belief system, then we lose our connection to godliness. Did I get that correct? Yes. Now, now today we, we don't need to look at this through a religious realm. That um, a connection to reason, I think, is just is still something that is exalted in the culture. That um, we we prize reasoned conversation. Uh, you are a radio host yourself, and I have lived in the realm of reasoned conversation for many years on National Public Radio, which which. I, I won't say National Public Radio represents the broad middle of American culture, but it, it does represent a certain strain in which um, reasonable conversation about the issues of the day are exalted. Um, simply the way we go about electing our politicians is by making them talk about their ideas, having websites in which they broadcast their ideas and debates in which they exchange and compete over ideas. Cultures run in the realm of reason, and so... Disabling one's reason is always going to be somewhat socially destabilizing and viewed as such by the mainstream of that culture. It is, a, it is something that the culture might even reasonably regard as being uh, destabilizing and therefore to some degree as dangerous. And so now... I want you to take us back a little. We could spend a little more time, perhaps at ten o'clock. We have. A, do you have some more time, George? Absolutely. Okay. I do, I do want to discuss alcohol a little further, uh, because in your book, you uh, you talk about one of my uh, my favorite people in this whole uh, anti-alcohol movement, uh, Benjamin Rush, right. because uh, <laughs> I'm quite familiar with his famous quote that uh, angels in heaven would 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 roll uh on their sides if they were able to see the besotted people in america and <laughs> and, and i'm i'm quite aware that he you might even he was the founder of american psychiatry but i think he might also have been the founder of the women's christian temperance union and might be the antecedent of, of prohibition in our country right he was a very important figure early on. And, and what's important about Benjamin Rush is that he was not just in, in his own making a moralizer, a moralist. He was by training a doctor, as you say, a physician. 
And he, um, he looked at the world therefore through um, a scientist's eyes. And one of the, the chief arguments he made about alcohol use, which at the time was not an argument against all alcohol use, it was um, most prominently an argument against abuse and especially against the use of, of um, distilled alcohol. But the argument that he made um, took a scientific form in which he disputed up what had been up till then is thought to be various necessary purposes of alcohol use. And he would argue, for example, that, that the notion that, that, uh, that alcohol keeps us warm in winter is just not true, or that alcohol is a necessary nutrient just isn't true. And so he disputed these notions of, of medical need that had until then... Um, prevented prohibition from taking rise. Even when people were very stridently against drunkenness, they did not go to the point of suggesting alcohol prohibition because it was thought to be essential to the diet, to sanitary consumption of fluid, and uh, to medicine. And he, by disputing those scientific notions, Benjamin Rush did advance his cause and the cause of later temperance movements toward prohibition, which had till then rarely been thought of as a possibility. And so take us back now. Well, let's leave alcohol a bit and, and let's let's go further back into into the into the antecedents of of these pro of, of these prohibitions and, and to what uh, and to what you talk about. In, in your book, because it seems to me that the basis of this entire movement, what you might call the anti-drug movement and what got distorted by Anslinger into a kind of uh, racist movement, is sex. We're back mm-hmm. to sex. Yes, I think I think that sex um, is it's the er pleasure in um, in human society, and and therefore in Western society, which gave rise ultimately to the laws uh, that that run this country today, and um, and attitudes towards sex did filter through. They were they were it was a, a a lineage that can be traced pretty directly between early Christian attitudes towards sex and later Puritan notions toward drunkenness. And, um, and of course, the links, at some point, they become, when we think about it, they become obvious that, that sex and alcohol are linked. Uh, biblically, we can see them linked. Um, you know, Lot gets drunk, and Noah gets drunk, and they do um, sexually licentious things when they are drunk. And um, that's not a surprise because, of course, we know that um, being drunk is one way of decreasing inhibitions towards sex, among many other things. So the link between sexual regulation and alcohol regulation ultimately really isn't surprising. And, and that, um, that Puritan pamphlet writers arguing against drunkenness would try to um, recruit St. Augustine to their cause in a very direct way uh, by using these uh, sermons against drunkenness, which Augustine never wrote, but which had been attributed to him. 
and using them as parts of their arguments against drunkenness many centuries after Augustine's, a whole millennium after Augustine lived, um, that lineage uh, can be traced that directly, that his ideas or what were perceived to have been, supposed to have been his ideas, were imported directly. The part of his ideas that did survive was this notion of bestiality, that, that, that appetite of sex and appetite of consumption of alcohol uh, were the same thing and that they put us out of our minds and made us more like barnyard beasts. And that was an imagery that um, pervaded throughout the, millenn- throughout the centuries, spanning early Christian times from Puritan English times some uh, 1,500 years later. So there's a problem. You can, you can prohibit drugs or at least attempt to, but you can't prohibit sex. Yes, very and 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 well said, and hence that notion that 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 necessity must be a moral excuse. Necessity um, in sex means procreative sex, and it also means marital sex, even to even when non-procreational, to the degree that marriage is a good social thing, and that we should encourage it by increasing intimacy between the partners. So there was even in formal early. Christian doctrine, there was a notion that non-procreative sex and marriage, although still not good, still a, a venial sin, was not the sin, the moral sin that non-procreative extramarital sex was. Um, and later that idea carries through so that alcohol use to the degree necessary for diet, for, for sanitary beverage, uh, for medicine, was also uh, sanctioned permitted, uh, allowed, uh, despite the usual notions that all overconsumption of alcohol must be banned. And, and today with drugs, we see it in all of the medical excuses for which doctors may legitimately prescribe what otherwise are forbidden substances today, right down to fentanyl, the drug that is killing so many people on our streets, but it has legitimate medical uses uh, that doctors may um, invoke and that are perfectly lawful when sanctioned by a doctor's um, prescription or by a doctor's um, decision during surgery to put a drug uh, in use. Where are we headed, George? Well, I think um, we are headed in in a a couple, one, one way I think we can say for sure we are headed toward broadly recognizing medicinal use of cannabis because that simply returns us to the old moral status quo where uh, authorized medical use of these substances does not violate the moral social norm. Um, We perhaps will need to capture medical use more directly by the medical establishment before it achieves the complete moral recognition and therefore legal recognition that um, that medical use of, say, many opiates um, has today um, when they are truly used within the bounds of legitimate medicine. So that prediction, I think, is an easy one. I think the recreational use of substances is a more difficult call. 
One prediction, though, I think I could make is that to the degree that that cannabis becomes a recreational substance recognized throughout the country today, it will be because eventually uh, the culture begins to see cannabis be in a different light, more in the same light in which we see alcohol. That is to say, a drug that has certain um, sub-intoxicating, social, socially valuable uses of um, permitting people to come together in society in a frame of mind that makes them open to the exchange of, of laughter and goodwill um, and, and, and reasoned conversation in the way that sub-intoxicating alcohol at a dinner party does. I think to the degree the culture recognizes that, that cannabis has that kind of non-stoner use, the culture will be more likely to recognize um, in a widespread way marijuana use or cannabis use more generally, um, even when recreational. George, you're a very distinguished professor of law. This is your life. Do you believe that using the law to limit the the use of certain substances is in societal interest? Well, some drug limitation and some use limitation um, is important. We know that sometimes we cause harm to others, uh, say, by driving while intoxicated. So I think... I think no one would dispute that notion. But um, when the harm done is to oneself alone, and of course we can never cabin to one person alone in a, in a world in which most people have some form of medical insurance, the harms we do ourselves are harms we also do society, at least costs we inflict on society. But nonetheless, I think, I think we know now from experience that the war against drugs has left us in a worse place. And we, we, it is a worse place because we have criminalized what is essentially addictive conduct and addiction widely now we recognize to be a disease. And criminalizing what is effectively a disease uh, to the degree that we criminalize drug use is going to be counterproductive and ultimately cruel. Uh, so we need in some way to achieve a, a place where we can treat those who are addicted and we can manage their addiction even to the degree of perhaps supplying the drug that created the addiction to the degree necessary with the eye toward effecting eventually a cure. We need to arrive at that place. And um, we're, not, we're not on the right track to do that. And along the way, we have created an awful lot of misery uh, in those communities that are most heavily targeted, those communities of color that have been disproportionately targeted by the enforcement of these drug laws. We have created misery. Uh, and we have created misery among all of those who have been targeted by the kinds of police tactics that rose up prominently to combat the drug law and the drug trade um, and to combat illegal drug distribution. And those police tactics are used outside the drug realm as well. So uh, would I ban these substances in the way they are banned today? No, 
I think I would, if it were up to me, and it's not, and I'm not an expert in modern drug policy, I don't pretend to be, but to the degree that I can discern the best course, it would be for the, uh, for the, for the state to monopolize the distribution of those substances that are used addictively, to make them available to the degree necessary so that they don't become an object of the underground criminal market, and to uh, help people who are addicted overcome that addiction, and not to allow this entire mechanism, to the degree it ever might take this form, uh, to become a source of funds that politicians could spend in all sorts of other ways, but to require any funds generated by the state co-optation of drug distribution to be used in drug prevention and treatment so that ultimately we spiral down um, and we don't, we don't propagate, but we hope to diminish and perhaps we can never end, but at least to diminish the, the, what is, I think, a personally self-destructive overuse of addictive substances that um, it now, unfortunately, has taken a, the form of epidemic disease in this country. By the same token, George, do you think it would be more effective for the society as a whole if the government took over the sale of sex? <laughs> uh, that's... A, a, you, you, that's a, a different and much harder question. I, sex has um, has taken a turn in this country over the last century that I, I think is it's it's both it both appears to be an increase in, in licentiousness and in all things go attitude towards sex, but I think is in in a different way not. At, not at all that, that sex is still regulated in many socially understood ways. Um, not criminally regulated, and I think that that is a good thing, except, with the, except in the realm of commercial sex. But, but, but sex is not the all things go, have fun at any cost, pleasure yourself realm that I think it is sometimes portray, portrayed to be. Um, Commercial sex represents a very difficult question. At least I perceive it as a very difficult question. Um, I, I think that that, um, that that arresting commercial sex workers, prosecuting them, is is ultimately a destructive course to go. Um, but I I also I also share the instincts of some people that um, and of lawmakers in general that the commercial sex trade is 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 not is not perhaps the most healthy place where we should arrive at as a culture and um and i so i at least am, am not a complete um, not a, com a completely um open to the most liberal course of lawmaking in this realm that's not my personal um a position on that on that topic, one that I have not studied, I should say, in any in any in any of the depth in which others have done so. Yeah, I mean they are related because these are areas in which very average people are involved, whether it's 
involving sex and the sex trade or involving drugs and the drug trade. And so we do need to, to, to come to some kind of resolution where we're not criminalizing the average person, and yet at the same time, we're not advocating behavior that we think is dangerous to the society. I think you said that very well. Uh, commercial sex work, I worry not so much because I think it is dangerous to society, but because I think that it can be dangerous to the individual. So it yeah. just puts people at risk in, in many ways that, that ultimately can be can be very can be very medically and um, and I think personally um, unsta- destabilizing. Yes, very much so. That's why I'm I'm thinking that we need some new way of dealing with it because as long as we keep it illegal, then the people, the workers, the women mostly, who are the sex workers, are subject to this cruel treatment of the people who control them. And that's where the, the rubber really meets the road, the terrible treatment that they receive as human workers. Yes, I think uh, women and trans persons are, are particularly vulnerable, and, and of course, young men as well. There are there are many vulnerable populations who are um, in the sex trade, and um, and because of the illegalization of the sex trade, are made more vulnerable by it. So, when is your book coming out? I hope in about a year. The academic world moves slowly, but I I, I hope and believe in about a year. And, and tell, our, tell our listeners the full title, please. Okay, it, it is called Euphoria Taboo, The Moral Roots and Racial Myths of America's War on Drugs. Great title. Well, thank you. Well, George, thank you very much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It's been a stimulating conversation. I, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I have, Richard, and, and thank you. It's, real, it's been a real honor to chat with you. And uh, when your book comes out, let's get in touch again, and it'll be time to do a second interview. Okay. Well, thank you for that offer. I, I appreciate it, and I will take you up on it. Please do. Thank you very much. Good day. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, David, as well. Yeah.